The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Today, we hear perspectives from two very different entrepreneurs. Something that's really important when it comes to achieving better mental health is community. And it's why I love doing this show. Selfishly, because it helps me, of course, But I think it helps all of us when we know we have things in common with people, even if those commonalities are things we don't always talk about. Later in today's show, we're going to hear from Michael Kaplan, someone I met because of a community I'm part of, an alumni network. And I know we can all roll our eyes when we get notifications of how well our former classmates are doing. But I feel really lucky to get to meet people like Michael Kaplan because of that community. Being an entrepreneur is not something that is easy, and particularly not when you bootstrap and ultimately sell to private equity and have issues with growing a business too fast and going into a business that you'd wanted to do your whole life because you grew up around a family version of it. None of that's easy in a steady state, and and all of that's probably going to leave any normal human being with the typical stress and anxiety of high achievers and entrepreneurs. I don't think I would have done what I've done or been able to accomplish what I've accomplished without my experience with anxiety powering through it, it being a part of who I am in my life and all of that. Michael was a musician growing up with a serious creative streak. He came from a family deeply involved in business, and he went on to go to Harvard Business School and become an entrepreneur himself. We'll talk to him about all of that. He was formerly CEO of a company called Fashion to Figure. Michael has something in common with today's first guest, Robert Glazer. They both understand the strain of selling your business, a business that they had worked so hard to create. Bob Glazer is a friend of the show. He's an entrepreneur and author of many books, including Elevate Your Team. And he recently left his position as CEO of the super successful company that he had built from the ground up. He shares how he had to adjust when he found the structure of his days and his personal identity had changed. We were talking a while back and you recently stepped down as CEO from the company that you built. Yeah. And you reflected that this was something that had made you, I think you said anxious. Uh, yeah. And, and just have a lot of complicated <laughs> feelings that you weren't expecting. I think some of them I was expecting, but still maybe not ready for. I, I had talked to enough people who had transitioned their role, sold their business, other things to know that I think it was a lot harder than people saw. I mean, there's a whole group of people, even separately, have sold businesses and they're pretty unhappy. And I know no one wants to talk about that. It seems like a a luxury, but I've been in those groups and I've been in those discussions through some of the organizations I have. So I think I was sort of ready for that. I don't think my body and my brain were on the same page. So I had been going Hmm. 
you know, 100 miles an hour for a decade. And in stepping back from that role and starting to sort of just slow down, you know, it's kind of like I used to like a microcosm of I have a vacation and I take vacation and I get really sick because it's almost like like the adrenaline kind of kept me going and then I stopped. So I think I had sort of a 10 year view of this where I started to have all these physical ailments and like it was actually my body was not used to this. Hey, where's the where's the hundred miles an hour? Like, where are we going? Like, and, and, and I mentally wanted this quiet time and these days to think about and plan. But then I think there was some anxiousness in that of not having enough to do or no one's calling or whatever. So it really, it, it, it was a complicated transition for everything I knew that was going to happen. Again, I, I, I tried to explain, I don't think my conscious mind and my subconscious mind were necessarily always on the same, same page. That's so interesting about your body. It yeah. was like protesting. <laughs> it was, I had like all of these varied physical, like I think people thought I was like a hypochondriac and I'm like the person who will like walk to the hospital, like with my arm broken, like I'm normally <laughs> or walk home. And yeah, it was just like one thing after another. And, and I, you know, I think there's obviously sort of a brain body kind of reaction there. I was mentally ready to slow down. I don't know that... <laughs> I was physically ready, or maybe I didn't go through the right withdrawal period. I don't know. Well, I do think it's interesting that we open this session by talking about how tired you are and you've been on planes and yeah. running around. So it's like you replaced the CEO role with another really demanding. Yeah, and that's not <laughs> that's not great. I think that's more of a of a temporary thing. But again, it's like we long for some time off and some quiet, and then we get it. And I think that produces some like what do I do next? <laughs> and and for particularly at the high, I just finished Arthur Brooks' book, Strength to Strength. And, you know, I think mm. he really kind of nailed this around the sort of success addiction and particularly sort of the, for the high achiever set, it's really, it's really hard to sort of figure out how to not fall back into that trap because I didn't want to do that either. Like I found myself very early on, oh, I'll go do this and that and that. But it's like, no, I actually... I need the space. I want the space. I want time to think about this stuff. But then in the moment, it is unfamiliar. What anxiety were you prepared for? You said you were prepared for a lot of the feelings that founders feel. Yeah, I had heard the word platform a lot. I, I was, you know, an identity. And I think mm -hmm. it was prepared for like, you are not the CEO anymore. That is your identity. You lose a bit of your platform. Like, I was kind of all good with that, like I said, I think in my conscious mind or mentally. But then I think the space on that or explaining to other people, hey, like, what are you doing now? And I'm fully comfortable with what I'm doing. But the question and that was asked was kind of like, you know, I think you could take that as a, you know, not you're useless, but like, you know, what's your what's your function these days? You know, you used to be, you know, people, would, are you retired? Are you this? And I found myself trying to justify. I'm like, I just wrote a book. I'm doing this. Like, I'm still, I'm still involved. Like, yeah, I, I found myself trying to justify to other people because I think it's a, you know, it is definitely a self worth thing. So I, I was more comfortable with it, the, the consequences directly, but then explaining them to others, I wasn't totally prepared for. What feelings did it trigger in you? It sounds like it, you said self worth. Like, what did it bring up for you? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it brings up it's sort of a defensiveness. Again, someone saying, hey, well, what are you doing? I'm like, I just got back from like nine days of travel and <laughs> three board meetings and all that stuff. And I'm like, are you doing anything? <laughs> Look, I think it's other 
what I mean is it's sort of a mirror of how other people kind of value productivity or busy or success and sort of their version of change. And so I had to learn how to take a deep breath and sort of answer that in a, in, in a different way. And, and there were two groups. I think the people who kind of knew me very well and sort of my circle who understood kind of what I was doing and then kind of an ancillary group. But yeah, I, it's all kinds of interesting feelings that that comes up. And again, what you're dealing with versus then the the perception or judgment of sort of the world, you know, around you is like, look, I'm still here. I'm still alive. Like I'm still productive and, and worth something. You know, I, you kind of feel the need to, to say that people don't mean anything by it. I'd probably ask the same questions, but it is interesting. But on the other hand, you had just achieved the dream you know, at a young age, you had a company that was so successful, you stepped down as CEO and the company is still thriving. Like you did what we all dream of. This has been pretty played out and I have read, you know, books on it. But for people who set these high goals and achieve them, they're usually not very long lasting. <laughs> you get to the top of the mountain, you're like, all right, that's nice. Like, what mountain am I going to climb next? I think that becomes a trap that you need to pay attention to. And I think I had to spend some time thinking about how to how to not look at it that way or not not jump into the next thing. You know, I, I've read more and more articles on this, just how it's so not long-lasting. <laughs> it's fairly, fairly fleeting. And I, you almost need to rethink the game of, hey, it's not about climbing the next thing. It's about figuring out how to enjoy the climb and what I'm doing and, and otherwise. And yeah, I've been reading a bunch of different books and they all seem to come to that very similar conclusion. Okay. I'm going to pose you this question. I was just asked this question by a journalist. Yeah. Is it possible to stop picking the mountains? I mean, I'm the same as you and I sold my company two years ago and have completely separated. And I don't think I let myself enjoy it for, I let myself enjoy it for a couple of weeks. Yeah. It was a very difficult transition. I grieved. I swear to God, I was in mourning. I, you know, I, I missed it. But I instantly turned and set myself this huge mountain to climb. And I honestly don't know how I would stop. Like, have you thought about how you might actually stop or pause? Yeah, I don't, I think it's just redefining. I've always said, like, I think figuring out a way to do whatever we're doing it is the journey, or we always said in our company, the journey was the reward that if we just focused on getting to a destination, we could then justify not having fun and all kinds of stuff on the way there. So I, I think it's rethinking what's the contribution? What's our unique thing that we do? How do we make sure that we're doing that today and be a little less focused on the gateway or the milestones? And I think I've done it enough now to know that that won't provide the panacea that, <laughs> that, that people think it was provide. So I think that my goal is a little more perpetual now in terms of impact or otherwise or other people and that they can be achieved a lot of different ways and through different means. What's been the single most helpful thing, exercise, book, process that has helped you think about reframing those goals away from just achieving? From Success to Success is a really good book. I think it was a number one New York Times bestseller. To me, it's like a, just a midlife crisis kind of book, <laughs> uh, too. I actually think he just did a really good job. And you're like, if you read that book, you're like, yeah, he's, he's nailed me. And he talks about how our intelligences change and this just raw cognitive intelligence that people have in their 20s and 30s 
it just declines faster than we think. Like no physicist has ever made a meaningful discovery past like 32. So you need to change the type of intelligence and what you're doing. And it becomes more about synthesis and experience and otherwise and other people, whereas it's a little bit more about kind of you and what you do. So that I read that book. I read Die With Zero, The Psychology of Money, like a whole bunch of different books that I think you start seeing the same sort of theme and you're like, huh, maybe maybe I have to play a different, a little bit of a different game here. And, and one of the things is I just tried to rush to fill that space, mm. which I think is very common. But I was like, huh, I don't really know the right thing yet. So I need to leave that space to make sure that I can find that. But in doing that, it means there was going to be space. <laughs> <laughs> and that, again, that can be feel uncomfortable or unproductive at times. How did you think about your schedule differently? Yeah, I always use kind of schedule blocking in terms of planning the big things first. Mm-hmm. I think uh, sort of the rock sand analogy, a lot of us sort of put the sand in first and then try to get the rock. So I try to look at my kind of goals and commitments, and that could even be family, like a big part of my goals last couple of years has been family or times with each of my kid and those trips. And like, do I have these things on the calendar first and then filling in the other things, but also just like scheduling free time, which is something that's, yes, not, not necessarily something that, you know, good for me. I mean, I, I, and I need it. I I've been looking, one of the things I've been looking at as a proxy of health is this kind of HRV heart rate variability. And like, I can see the difference between being outside, talking to people, spending time with people and being on Zoom and being on plan. I mean, the data is actually pretty clear on how both of those things affect me physically. I mean, I just went to my 25th college reunion. And after the day of talking to people all day, it was the highest heart rate variability I had had in like five months. (laughs) Um, It was just very interesting. Wow. Yeah. Did you talk to the people in your life and ask them for help or tell them that you might be feeling weird things and give them a plan to help support you or talk about it? Yeah. I mean, I talked to my wife and my family and some coaches and, and different people. I think different people in different realms. And I, I, I'm really lucky to be in a lot of these business forums where it's almost like group therapy um, in terms of having really very open, honest discussions. So. <laughs> Look, I talked to people who also had been through similar things because I think that's the most helpful. And, you know, I heard a lot of similar stories. Yeah, varying degrees of of discussions and talking to people and looking for solutions and telling them sort of where where I was. And again, trying to figure out, like, am I just getting hurt a lot? Or like, (laughs) is is my brain trying to tell my body something? Wow. When did the anxiety hit you after you had stepped down? Like, was it during the day or was it over certain things? Like, what what form did it take besides being in your body? I think it was sort of night, particularly over the winter when I'd be less likely to be out and doing something. And again, there weren't all those emails and things for me to do. And it was just sort of like, felt like, huh. What do I do? I'm used to like no one's home tonight. And <laughs> I'm used to like I just jump on email from six to nine. Oh my God. I don't think I realized how much of work was just always there and for me to jump into and kind of an easy out. And I think sometimes in looking at the schedule, it's a weird in between. If I had a day that was over scheduled, I'd be like, oh. And if I had a day that was like under scheduled, I'd be like, Oh, like, (laughs) what am I going to do tomorrow? (laughs) So I think people that are making a transition are are used to being busy and need the space to help really figure out what's next. 
And then when you take that space, it feels really weird mm-hmm. and it feels like you're not productive and you're not doing anything. Yeah. I think that's interesting. And all the data on sabbaticals show that you just need time to like settle into it. Yeah. There's an unwinding period. And then there's like, right. I've seen that too. And even people when say they take a vacation the first three days and then they get into it and they come out of it. So I think it's like, it's like any transition. And, but again, from the sort of achievement standpoint, like I, I, I'm not going to run <laughs> to fill the void. I'm not going to run. People say, Oh, do you want to be on the board? Do you want to be an advisor? I mean, my inclination is yes, 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 yes. <laughs> And then I'd realize, like, oh, I'm going to be fully booked in no time again. It's exactly what I didn't want. Are you going to write another book? I've written another book, yes. What? I just uh, – I've already <laughs> what? written another book. Wait, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> this is a book I want to write. It's very different. I wrote a parable. So I, I, I really wanted to focus on something around the concept of core values, which has been really prevalent in a lot of my writing, but thought it would not make a really interesting book. So I thought the way Patrick Lincioni and some other people had – kind of done the show don't tell and my daughter had kind of challenged me so I, I i worked on a fiction book but i actually stopped working on it i decided no concurrent books so i actually stopped just put it down for four months while i launched my book which is something i not have done in the past where again i'm turning up something that's good into something that becomes overwhelming right and so I, I now i've actually just picked it up and i'm dusting it off after having not touched it in four months so that's somewhere where i got a little better learning from my mistakes My last question is just, it's really about connecting with your childhood and your youth. Yeah. Like, as you've talked about this and sort of the success to success and the addiction, I think we feel to achievement, like, did it bring up times in your youth where that was you? Has this been a lifelong pattern? No, this is, this is, I've talked about this, but most things run deep, right? You're running for or against. Mm -hmm. This is the opposite. I, I was a dramatic underachiever <laughs> for <laughs> most of my life, which then led to overachievement, which then, so this is, a, it's a whole different cycle. I, I think, trust me, no one ever in my high school or whatever, you know, called me an overachiever. And so I think for me, that was a lot of what sort of drove me when I figured out that, you know, I just didn't do really well in the, as sort of an ADD creative kid in the traditional yeah. classroom and curriculum. And once I realized that I love to learn and all the stuff that people told me to stop doing was actually like the stuff that I was really good at. <laughs> and then I ended up kind of being the strength of my career. So again, I think part of that's hard to, we all overcompensate. So it's trying to find the middle, the middle ground there. That's so interesting. Do you think you fit into some of the ADHD, like entrepreneur magic? Like there's so much research on this, right? That when... Yeah, I have ADD. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think actually I have HD. I, I'm I'm, I'm a little strange in that I'm very organized. I think it's a coping mechanism yeah. that I developed very early on. But like for someone who's pretty creative and otherwise, I have like systems and files and all this stuff that kind of keep me on track. I mean, I email myself like 30 times a day because I know that like (laughs) most of my emails from me, (laughs) because once the thought goes by, it won't be, it won't be back again. Yeah. Thank you so much, Robert Glazer. Thank you, Mara. Always a pleasure. Next up is my conversation with entrepreneur Michael Kaplan, and we started by talking about how he views success and what he's seen successful people do, either in creative or business endeavors. I think the successful artists or the successful entrepreneurs or the successful people that, you know, get through anxiety to accomplish those, they keep 
modifying what is it that I'm going to accomplish? Like, what what is it? How is the vision going to adapt, change, and evolve? You know, certainly when I went out and started playing music, one of the first contemporary saxophone players I listened to was David Sanborn. I've actually gotten to meet him. I've gotten gotten to meet him later in life, and he's a wonderful person and still plays to this day. And so obviously when you're, you know, 12, 13 years old and you listen to an album of somebody like that, you know, you immediately get the vision and very vivid visual in your mind to, I want to emulate that. I want to be that. I want to be that person. But then as you start out on the road towards that, you're recalibrating all the time based on, you know, your own practical experience. Now, it's the same thing in entrepreneurship. I mean, everybody asks me, at a time in my, you know, in my, my business school class, a lot of people that, that didn't go into entrepreneurship or didn't, didn't make it would ask me because my first business was a 17 year venture. It really only had a significant change when we took in private equity, which is a whole other experience that wasn't a great one as an event. And it was a wonderful learning experience, but it was certainly a venture that I wanted to do the rest of my life. And I, I grew up around a really large business. Yeah, tell us about that. Tell us about growing up in this business. My great-grandmother was a woman by the name of Lane Bryant, who in the 1890s invented, I guess at the time, which was called special size shopping. The company you know, has become synonymous in the 20th century with, I suppose, the equivalent of big and tall men's clothing, but you know, larger women's clothing all through the 20th century. It was the dominant player, really the only person that did that. My dad and my great uncle were the last leaders of the company that sold the business out of the family. It was a big public company. I mean, we had hundreds of stores and I grew up and was in a situation where as a child, you don't know anything but what's normal, you know, anything but what you're shown. What I was shown as a, as a kid was that, you know, we always got off a plane and did a store tour or, you know, I went on a play date and went to the nearest store to get picked up. And you know, I just thought that's the way everybody lived. I, ju I just thought everybody had, you know, stores in every city in America and that, you know, everybody had this brand because, you know, obviously the family history is an interesting, great thing. But I mean, I, I was born into a big public company that my dad was giving shareholder meetings at and practicing, ironically, and funny memories of him practicing his shareholder meetings to me and my brother who were little kids because he felt that if he could give it to kids who would laugh at him, it would be good practice for the shareholder meetings. But Growing up around that, I only ever wanted to do that with my life, you know, and, and get back to what the family business was. And not because I really understood more anything that the business did. When I saw the business, I didn't really understand clothing or sizing or, you know, sourcing or globalization. And the thing that impacted me wasn't what the company did. What impacted me was seeing and, and experiencing the feeling that the consumers and the associates at the company had. You know, we would walk into these stores and it was really clear that the community that the store would develop of consumers and people that were working there had such an appreciation for what we were doing, what we were building. There was a tremendous gratitude. And, and I just ended up growing up with this incredible feeling of responsibility to continue that. I mean, there was, you know, 10,000 employees and tens of millions of consumers over time that came to rely on this brand, you know, for their for their livelihood and and their products and that just became something that was a very meaningful thing. 
when I went into the business world after the company was sold and I started my journey and I came back to objectively and critically and analytically looking at this market opportunity, the inclusive size clothing market in the United States is, you know, the only growing segment. It grows at 19% a year. It's 85 million American women. It's $80 billion market. And, and it's very not well served and underserved because of the specialization needed. So when I came out of business school, I had an opportunity to go into the market. And again, it's one of those things where my reference point was, you know, my family's public company that was the market leader of the space that my dad ran with thousands of people. That was the vision for now what was, you know, decades later, starting a new company. When my brother, who was my business partner at the time, and I rented a store in a shopping mall and we ran it ourselves for 15 hours a day, you couldn't get any farther away from what I grew up around than that. You know, like we ran the register, put in the cash register system, the technology. Why did you decide to do that? Like you didn't have to do that. You could have probably become an executive at Lane Bryant and, or whatever, or gone to Wall Street or done whatever you wanted, right? I was very fortunate with a lot of mentors and people growing up that I did go to Wall Street when I left Brown. I had a, a second job at a venture capital firm where the founders of the firm were really wonderful to me and taught me about the opportunity, the financial upside of starting a business. And I think the opportunity of seeing how businesses were started was what I actually tied to what I felt growing up. You know, even though the Lane Bryant business growing up was a really, really large business, it was still a family business. It was still something that was, you know, our blood, sweat and tears. It was everything. It was all consuming. You know, it was my mother's family's business. My father actually had been hired when he graduated from business school himself. And my mother got married and he became this, you know, the, the president of the company. And my only point in all of that, you know, is that it permeated everything. I mean, my mother's parents were actually friends of my father's parents and they lived across the street from one another. And it was sort of like parents saying, oh, my God, you, know, you should hire our children. You know, I know your your business needs good people. You know, it, so it permeated literally everything about my own life family story. And so the idea of going to be an executive at a company where, you know, you've got to be amazingly good, do amazingly well, be brutally objective and honest about the work. I didn't think I could stand out in a situation like that. I thought I was only going to be able to stand out in an area where I could pick up the work that my family had done and that I had grown up around and bring a level of passion, desire and history to it. Nobody else on the planet has that. And for better or for worse, that's just where I'm, I have a uniqueness. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better. Positivity is just a belief that there are good things even in the midst of a broken world. Post-traumatic growth is about actually growing stronger as a result of trauma. The universe only has one chance to see through your eyes. Give yourself that much respect and your life that much respect. Join me every week to explore the stories and ideas that show us how we can live even better every single day with people who are changing the world. Tune in to my weekly podcast, Everyday Better, wherever you like to listen. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. 
Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. So let's talk about your anxiety. I mean, were you a kid who had a lot of anxiety? I did, yeah. I mean, one of the things that was some of the first memories I had, Maura, and I mean, you probably, it's funny, I read your book and and the title of it, the Alumni Monthly, and I think we overlapped at Brown for a couple of years, but it made me think to myself immediately, you know, oh my God, where was she when I was at Brown? We would have been friends and I could have understood so much more about myself. We wouldn't have been because we would have been hiding out in our dorm rooms like, <laughs> having exactly. anxiety attacks. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's that's totally right. And that's that, that's yet another example of the image being different than reality, because of course you learned all of this since then. Yep. You know, that's what the dreamers do is they they cook up these, you know visions of what could be. And it, of course, has nothing to do with reality because you're absolutely right. We probably would have been huddled in a room. You know, I come from a family of incredibly high achievers. That probably lends itself to being, you know, a very high strung, overachiever, tightly wound, you know, driven, very type A person to begin with. I think when I first learned anxiety was, I mean, I vividly remember being four years old as a kid. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't walk right. We went to doctors for about a year and I, I had my, my leg put in a brace for a year because I had what was called leg perthes disease. Hmm. The disease is one where your hip doesn't grow into its socket properly. And so as a result, at some point, your, your legs are not the same lengths. And so I remember we learned that there was a, a procedure I could have and they would put a metal plate in my hip and I'd be in a wheelchair for a year. And I started kindergarten and in kindergarten I was in a wheelchair. And that's when I began to really learn how to be anxious because with this metal plate in my hip, if I was in the wrong position at any time, the metal plate would rub up against the bone in my hip and it was excruciating pain. And I, I remember getting fearful of that pain happening and being on my own in school in this chair, being stuck there without my parents or, or people to be helpful and getting very fearful that I was going to experience pain like that during the day and nobody would be able to help me. And it was a very stuck feeling. It was a feeling of being stuck. And, you know, that feeling, thankfully, you know, went away and subsided mm -hmm. over the years as I got over this injury and my, my legs grew to the same length. And, you know, it's funny, I actually played football at Brown. Really? Some of my closest friends are the guys that I played with, but they actually really played and were great athletes. I mean, I simply was just on the team for a couple of years. I was really no good. And I like I couldn't even compare to all of them. But because of that experience as a kid. And because of how anxious it made me, I just was so happy to be part of it. And that's one of the things that anxiety can do and, and experiences like this that create it can do. They can set you up for wonderful life victories because I know, for example, my friends who are some of my best friends today, they're the best guys are the, the guys in my, my class at Brown. And, you know, there's about 15 of us that get together every year. And it's, it's just such a wonderful school. We have such a wonderful group of friends. It's just such a, 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 I mean, I hate to sound cliche, but it's a real blessing in life that we have a text chain and we're all together all the time. They're wonderful people. They, in my position, would have been very disappointed not to have certain 
collegiate athletic careers because they were stars, you know, from the backgrounds they came from, you know, they were there to make an impact on the program. And they ultimately did. I mean, they were one game shy of winning the Ivy League, you know, when we started at Brown, the team was 0-10. But in my case, one of the things that anxiety, I think, does, which I, I would share with everybody is it allows you to be appreciative of the little things. And for me, just being out there when I couldn't even walk as a kid and just being friends with these these guys, you know, is a wonderful thing. And and not, you know, not being anxious in a place where you can play Division One sports and not being concerned that your leg is going to cause you excruciating pain is actually a wonderful thing when you have that. You know, the, yeah. the, the thing about anxiety, I don't know if you've experienced this, Maura, but I remember reading in school one year, Aristotle's book on ethics. And, you know, he's got that saying, you know, nothing exists without its antithesis. When you know anxiety, the antithesis of that is great calm. And that's a wonderful thing. So, you know, anxiety is not all bad. It's, I mean, it's, you know, you can, you can achieve and appreciate some wonderful things when you have it. I want to fast forward a little bit to the private equity and your sale of your company, because I'm interested in that. And I'd love you to be as open as you feel willing to, because I think listeners are really interested. Like a lot of us think like, what is private equity? And when you sell, aren't you supposed, isn't it supposed to be the happiest moment of your life? And Right, right. <laughs> so can you set the scene for us? And like, yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, it's, it's a very important thing for founders and entrepreneurs. I mean, America is flush with private capital in a way that is the envy of the world. And it makes us an entrepreneurial nation, which is something that I think gives us great hope. You know, capitalism has, in some cases, run away with itself. I was never good enough on Wall Street to even understand what that area is about. But, you know, I, I worked there for a couple of years. So I can't really speak to that level of capitalism. I do know that, you know, with my family's business, it's a wonderful example of capitalism where, you know, there's incredible upward mobility in the ranks of people. There's employee stock ownership, there's child daycare, there's creating wonderful products, there's, you know, creating ecosystems within the company of producing the product that touch different countries and different things. And that all can happen now in ways that it didn't happen for my great grandmother because we have this incredible private equity system in America where whether it's venture capital or growth equity or mature private equity or now family offices or special situations. You know, my great grandmother's story was one where she literally pawned a set of earrings for a sewing machine so that she could make ends meet for her and her one-year-old child because her husband dropped dead on the street. What? Was she an immigrant or was she a- She was. She was. Yeah. No, my great grandmother came in the late 1800s to America. She, you know, learned how to be a seamstress. Then she met somebody and got married. You know, they had a child and the person she married died of tuberculosis. She moved in with a sister with the one-year-old and was making ends meet as a seamstress. She couldn't get a sewing machine in addition to her sister. So she, her husband who dropped dead, left her a set of earrings. She pawned them for a sewing machine and then I guess a woman came in one day and said, Mrs. Bryant, if you, if you figure out how to make a dress for the pregnancy that I'm about to have, I'll pay you a little extra. Her attempted innovation was 
putting an elastic waistband in the dress that would expand as the woman expanded. And she called it slenderizing fashion. Because I guess at that time in the 1890s, women in their second trimester or on weren't, I mean, this is how sad society was at the time. It's still got terrible problems, but this is even more draconian back then. Women who were pregnant past a certain point were not meant to be seen publicly. It was quote unquote unseemly. Right. You're confined. Yeah. Yeah. This was a dress innovation that could mitigate that. And she, you know, like all immigrants at the time in the Industrial Revolution, she was smart enough to patent the idea and is credited with creating the maternity dress. And that's amazing. I didn't know that. Her second husband had an engineering background and really could take kind of like a, a cookie cutter widget type approach to that business. And, you know, they grew it and they had an incredibly successful business they took public. You know, literally in the Great Depression in the in the twenties, they you know obviously had a ten year old business when the horse and buggy was invented. They shepherded through World War One, World War Two. I mean, a lot of incredible things of that company, and it's still obviously a brand today that does close to a billion dollars and is a is a main provider for people. But getting back to private equity, the thing that is advantageous for my generation versus that kind of story is. Somebody like me can grow up with a dream inspired by that story. And there's capital markets now that allow you to entertain recreating that, which is what I did. So what you did when you first started the business or more recently? All the above. Mm. All the above. Mm -hmm. When I first finished graduate school and I had an idea for making a more progressive retail store and store environment, there was angel investor type capital, because that's become normalized in America. There was angel investor capital that was amenable to underwriting my idea. And, you know, I remember the first couple of people who who did that were people who had offered me jobs otherwise. And, you know, there's one guy who's gone on to be a very successful CEO of an investment bank that, that he just sold, actually. And I remember him saying, you know, and, and this is a normalized thing now in terms of the capital world. I don't think it has been, you know, over when my great grandmother was alive, but he said, you know, you want to do something with your life that's not just a job, but it's going to be something that's an incredible passion for you. So I picked something that was a passion. And then there were people like him and many others who would underwrite that entrepreneurial idea. Like that, that's really called seed capital now a days to, to get an idea up and running. Our business was so successful, Maura, thanks to the people that I had working with me. We were so successful as a progressive store. And, you know, for, for 10 or 12 years, we, we opened in four states in the Northeast, I guess not really the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York was the first kind of rollout that we did. We had a wonderful store experience that we provided just like I grew up around for both the people that were working with us and the consumers. But, you know, one thing I would advise people as it relates to growth capital is you really should know what your own goals are, what your plan is, and match that with the right capital provider. I really was frustrated. We had a great business, a very, a very nice, homegrown, bootstrapped business, meaning that we we weren't very big. I think we were like 15 or $20 million at the time. We had taken in very little, just capital from angel investors. And we didn't have any of the pressures that can come with institutional capital and needing to get you know sophisticated in one fell swoop. However, mm -hmm. 
I personally at the time, and I think this is an example of, of one of the times I wasn't very emotionally intelligent. I was frustrated with the fact that our $20 million business wasn't like the billion dollar business I grew up around because that's what I was after. You know, that's what my image was. That's what my vision was, is I, I wanted that. Did you feel like your self-worth was intertwined too? Like there was a piece of it, like you felt like you had to create something as big. Yeah, I did. I think that's a really interesting observation you just made. That's the, I, I, I don't know that I could have said it as elegantly as you just did or concisely, and, but I think that is precisely the point is that I, I thought that I could be doing more and should be doing more because I've seen more. And I just, I didn't value it. I think it's, you got right to the heart of it. And, you know, it, it's sad for me because, you know, I, my, I was in business with my older brother who did a very different thing at the business than I did. It was a real challenge to be brothers in a business. However, if I could have avoided the issue you pointed out, I think it would have made that relationship easier because he he did appreciate what we were doing. He mm. really did appreciate. He didn't have any of the like delusions of grandeur that I had, which is, you know, we had a billion dollar company and we need to create one. He just was doing the work. He was just yeah. doing the work of like, you know, this is a business and we have a business that has nothing to do with our family's business. And, you know, we're in a different end of the market, a different aspect of the market. We have a different consumer you know, it's, it's 130 years later, like it's, it was a whole different thing. And, and look, I, I do think it takes a dreamer like me, but it also takes grounding like him. Yeah. And, you know, we, we had that. And frankly, if we weren't brothers, those were the perfect skill sets to bring together for the mission. But as a result of, of what I felt strongly about wanting to do more in terms of the size and scope, I had started cultivating relationships with a lot of growth equity firms. And there was somebody that I had gotten to know over the years that was very nice to me, very nice person, very smart person who was a year ahead of me in business school. And he was going to create a new investment firm, which made the ability to do a deal with us in our business quite malleable. In other words, mm. it wasn't a firm that had been established for decades where there was a pattern to what they did every time. And that that's what their constituents wanted them to have. So it was, you know, very nice, very nice experience, very smart people and a good investor that made some of our angel investors, you know, five times their money. And But I rolled everything that I owned into the deal because, again, to your point of self-worth, I was like, I'm headed to nirvana here. So like, this is, you know... <laughs> Like I, everything's on the way to this, you know, big end goal. And one of the things that happened was, is I said, now that we have capital, everything that I've always been frustrated, we didn't have for 12 years, you know, an ERP system, a better website, you know, a whole new generation of people, a bigger scope in what we do, becoming vertically integrated in our manufacturing for a product, you know, setting up stores in four or five other states at the same time, because we know that model. I went and I put a plan together that said, I want to do these 12 things. Now, given the experience that I've developed today, any investor or any operator or any board member ought to be able to say to somebody, never do more than two things in a year unless you will overtax the organization, you will break something. Right, right. You need to do two things a year in order of importance. So I had a lot of people around me, the investor, I think included, I think the investor probably would admit this, that, you know, they helped me. It's all my responsibility. I mean, I was the leader of the whole thing. It's, it's all me. It was all me. But nobody stood in the way of me 
taking on way too much to the point where we got the company way out of the success that it had grown up with. So just certain things like we had launched every single store with a 90 day period where the founders were in stores that stopped. We got away from training programs. We got away from the way that we had curated product and, and sized product. We, we all of a sudden changed it in one fell swoop. We began expanding the scope of the operations and inherently distracted people that had done and been very focused on one thing that were now doing other things. So Frankly, I, I think if it had been a widgets business, we would have broken. It was just too much. Yes, too, way too much, way too much. And, you know, look, the anxiety in a period like that, I mean, watching your dream fall through your fingers after, you know, 15 years, I mean, the anxiety of that and having invested all your time and money and all your friends and family money. And I only wanted to do that for the rest of my life. I mean, I often thought after the business was restructured and we sold it. I often thought I didn't really appreciate what I had. And if I could just go back and, you know, run it the way that we were running it, the people that make billions and billions of dollars in retail do it over a lifetime and they do it very, very slowly. I mean, it's very rare that there's people who, you know, there are some incredible people like the people at Viore Clothing, you know, this guy, Joe Kudlow, who I've gotten to know is incredible. And, you know, but even people like the Faraday brothers who are terrific yeah. guys, it's 10 years and a lot of investment into it. And it just, it takes a while. These brands and these businesses take a while. They're a labor of love. There's a way to succeed even in today's landscape, which is what I'm doing now with, a, with another concept in plus size to utilize all the experience and all the lessons that I've got. But I guess the, the epilogue of capital and as it relates to anxiety and stuff is, I think when you're an entrepreneur, it's never too early to start the lessons. But you really should understand the goal of where you want to get to and match it with the right capital provider. Because even though the capital provider I had were really nice people and they were, you know, good, good guys. I mean, there's a lot of companies that they've been involved with that haven't worked as many that have worked. And they also, they needed certain things that I wasn't really aware of at the time. You know, any investor has customers of their own, which are their limited partners. And you as a company now need to adapt your norms to what they need to report to their customers. And so that better be part of what you want on your journey as an entrepreneur or else do it another way, you know, right. or else go to a family office or keep bootstrapping it. I mean, I was really, really lucky to know a friend of mine introduced me to the founder of Crate and Barrel, a wonderful, wonderful man named Gordon Siegel. You know, and he said to me, look, you know, I, I built crate and barrel over 40 years because I never took an outside dollar. It was all my money. You know, I, I leveraged this, I leveraged that. And I don't know that he did that because he was thinking, this is the way I want to grow it. And as a result, I need to match the capital to it. But I would say just match all of the audiences to the plan and goals you've got. Because if you were like me and you're setting out to run a business that you only ever wanted to do for the rest of your entire life, then Forget about comparing yourself to other people. Forget about, as you said, investing your net worth in the business and forget about taking professional capital who in four years needs a return, right. you know, needs you to actually do something with the business unless you want to go play that game. As you're starting something new, it sounds like you have a lot of, of sadness and grief around this. I, I, I'll tell you when I sold my very small business, not a comparison. I mean, everything you were just saying, I feel I had a beautiful utopia and i 
thought that if I sold it, that better things were around the corner. And, you know, it's something that it's taken me years to work through in therapy. And sure, it's hard. Maybe it's our common personalities in, you know, feeling things viscerally. I would say, though, that one thing with me is I'm over the sadness and I actually feel very, very empowered by the lessons that I've learned. And it's one of the things that I bring it back to anxiety, looking back at the tough lessons and now feeling as though I'm in a better position than ever to go at the industry because I've been on a store floor 17 years every day with this consumer to know the idiosyncrasies and to to actually be in a better position than ever to go at it again. A lot of people will go away from something that made them anxious or caused them pain. They'll look away from that. I tend to be the opposite person, which is I'll lean into that because now it's a flattened learning curve. So that's what I would leave you with is it's not a sad story. It's actually quite an empowering one that's put me in the position I'm in right now. We are buying and building companies in the space on the the most optimized platform for our industry with incredible partners in manufacturing, fabric technology, designers celebrities, you know, we we have the most incredible platform to serve this consumer because I've never stopped being passionate about it. I've never stopped wanting to do it. And we can buy and build with real specification anything in the category. So I would just say that with these anxiety drivers, Mora and anything, I mean, they're not bad stories. They can be positives. You know, playing the saxophone, being an entrepreneur, it's all part of it. And I I love it. And I, I love talking to you. Thanks very much for this. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening. 